0: And
1: welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and it's been a minute. Um, yeah, it has been quite a while since our last episode uh, looking at the complete Mr. And, um, Just a side note on that episode, how great a guest was Adam? Um, lovely fellow and a good friend and happy to finally have him on, on mic to chat about some movies. And yeah, that was really fun having him on board. So, uh, with any luck, we'll uh, get him back for some more episodes in the future. But, yeah, as I said, it has been a while. Um, About a month and a half or so. I mean, initially, um, uh, sort of back at the end of June, uh, right around the time the Mr. Arkadin episode dropped... Um, Patreon listeners will know that uh, both Lee and I were actually overseas for a friend's wedding, um, so, that, so there was an issue with the upload of the Patreon episode, so apologies again for that. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of one reason why we were slightly delayed, but uh, I figure, you know, giving you listeners a full transparency, behind, uh, sneak behind the curtain, I guess, as to why it's been so long between episodes... Um, I've been in a lot of pain, (laughs) Um, to put it bluntly. Um, I'm actually suffering from a really horrible back injury at the moment. Um, I've got a protruding disc in my spine. Um, So uh, it's a lot of pain and it's really hard to kind of sit and stand and pretty much do anything. Um, So because of that... I haven't sort of uh, really been able to kind of sit down and commit and be able to record an episode. Um, I'm on some good uh, medications at the moment that are kind of helping me get through that. Um, But again, I'm, you know, it's going to be a few more weeks before I'm meeting with a surgeon and we'll see how we go from there. But uh, yeah, just sort of, like I said, in the idea of giving you guys full transparency as to why it's been so long, there we go. So with any luck... Um, it might be, I might be able to sit down and do a few more episodes in the coming weeks, but w- if, it, if it's another couple of weeks in between Bites at the Apple, that's sort of why. <laughs> um, but yeah, so hopefully, you know, we'll have some more episodes soon, but we'll see. Uh, but in the meantime, like I said, it has been a while since we've, um, since I've sat down in front of the mic to actually talk about some of the stuff Uh, that I've seen, let alone Criterion films. Uh, So I want to run through a little bit of that before we get into this week's episode, uh, because, again, full transparency, I don't have a lot to say about this week's film. But, uh, yeah, I should mention as well, uh, at the time that I'm recording this, uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival is... uh, We are deep in that at the moment, so I'm seeing quite a lot of films um thankfully uh, through the comfort of uh screener links which is very handy <laughs> makes makes it a lot easier with the with the back pain and things but i won't get into any of that i'll save that for a future little episode once it's all kind of done and dusted but uh what i will talk about is a couple of like the main key films that kind of uh haven't talked about uh since of, uh since the last episode and it's been blockbuster season um I stupidly, uh, getting back from the overseas flight, uh, I think my plane arrived back in Melbourne at like 6.30 in the morning, and then I went immediately and saw uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 at like 11 (laughs) a.m. I love those movies. I I think they... Perfectly, at least the kind of from four onwards from Ghost Protocol when Brad Bird kind of steps in. I mean, with the J.J. Abrams Mission Impossible 3, you can kind of see what they're doing and they're kind of setting up the template for what the films are going to become. And I should also say, I fucking love the original Brian De Palma. I think that's one of the best of the whole series. But what they have become uh, from Brad Bird and then obviously Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie coming in and taking kind of the helm of all of these films... Um, for me, they're kind of filling the gap of what James Bond used to be. Um, with the, with the Daniel Craig Bonds, like I fucking love James Bond. I think Daniel Craig is what is fantastic. I think Casino Royale is arguably the best James Bond film there has ever been, but it, they lack the fun that they used to have. So, for me, when I look at the Mission Impossible films, they really remind me of like the Roger Moore era Bond films—the ones where kind of it's again globe-trotting adventure. They're not taking themselves too seriously. They've got two or three like major set pieces, and it's just charismatic and fun. And this latest edition, Dead Reckoning, is again a perfect example of that. Um, it's not my favourite in the series. Um, I would probably put it right in the mid mid section there. Um, I still think uh, I'm still a Rogue Nation fanboy. That one for me is kind of the the best of the whole lot, but it's kind of right there in the middle of this one. It's it's really enjoyable, and in particular, I saw it right after um, the very next film that I went and saw was uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and it's which was fine. Um, you know, it is what it is, <laughs> um, but. It's it made Mission Impossible Dead Reckonings feel more engaging and more impressive a feat of filmmaking because all of this for them for the most part the stunts and the situations that Cruz and the other actors are putting themselves in. Are real. There is a real car chase in a little, like, Fiat through the streets of Rome. They hop in the little fucking Castle of Cagliostro car, the Lupin's car, and just do insane shit. And it's real. It's practical. It's them. It, you know, might not be them then, but it is you. Know, it is a real car with real people driving it. And then when you compare that with the car chases, of which there's like four in Indiana Jones, um, it's it's all CGI and it just doesn't quite work for me in particular immediately after seeing it, you know, the next day after seeing dead reckoning, it's like, it is just a Testament to the power of, you know, practical filmmaking and the ingenuity that, you know, I guess cruise is like one of the only ones that's still doing it. And, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Indiana Jones, all I'll say is, it's fun. Like, go in with your, you know, your expectations in check. Nothing's going to be Raiders. Just, just go in and have fun. That's <laughs> kind of my, my motto for films this year is like, just, just enjoy it. Like, it's hard to make a movie. These people worked hard, they tried. <laughs> um,. But yeah, I mean, on that note of people working hard and trying, and like, I'm, you know, I'm going to avoid any sort of all the discourse that's going on, and I'm sure everyone is sick to death of hearing about Barbie and Oppenheimer, but all I'm going to say about those is, they fucking rule. I mean, it's, you know, (laughs) what else is there to say? Barbie, I think my review that I gave it on Letterboxd was, I'm just so happy this young generation finally have their own Josie and the Pussycats. And by that, I mean a fun, silly, camp, tongue-in-cheek, meta-ironic film that is really fun, really engaging, and kind of sweet at its core. Um, Like, I viewed it how what Josie and the Pussycats did for uh, capitalism and consumerism, this is Barbie does for the patriarchy, and I just, I loved it. I thought it was hysterical. Um, I, I thought it was, you know, um, again, I'm going to avoid any sort of, oh, that bullshitty internet discourse about it. Uh, just as a film, I had a blast. Um, this was sort of right around the time when the back pain was kicking in horribly. So thankfully I was sitting in, um, we have this thing in here in Australia called, uh, gold class, um, where it's sort of, you know, the, the luxury cinema thing where you get the reclining chairs and people like serve you food and drinks and yada, yada, so it was kind of good timing and good atmosphere. I was doped up on a lot of cocktails, sitting down in a reclining chair watching that movie, and I had a blast. One of the most fun films and fun movie-going experiences of the year. And uh, the, again, the very next day, I went and saw Oppenheimer, uh, which I fucking loved. I I think it is Christopher Nolan's best film since Dark Knight. Um, I mean, I'm not a big Nolan fanboy. I... I, love, I, I do really enjoy what he does, but the last few, with the exception of... I think Dunkirk is fucking fantastic. But prior to that, uh, Interstellar, Tenet, um, Dark Knight Rises, all of those sort of ones I am not the biggest fan of at all. Um, just could not get into them. It's that thing where he's an undeniable cinematic director where, again, similar to what I was saying about the Mission Impossible stuff he he loves his practical effects and he loves the craft of filmmaking and the what he does and puts behind making one of his films like i said is undeniable but from a story perspective and from an actual engagement from an, as a, an audience goer i haven't really gotten into one with the exception of dunkirk since maybe inception i, I yeah cuz in, yeah inception's after dark knight yeah but Oppenheimer, I just loved it. It's really one of those films that's, it's like crack for me. It's just big bombastic, beautifully shot people sitting around in boardrooms talking (laughs) and I fucking loved it. Um, I, I've heard a lot of people like Claire included, um, who talked about, you know, it kind of waned for them after, you know, the bomb stuff and where, I mean, slight spoilers, but everyone's fucking seen Oppenheimer by this point. Um, where the last hour of the film is essentially it shifts into a courtroom drama, and it, that I loved that. <laughs> that that was that was my jam. I love courtroom dramas, and you know seeing these actors and this incredible ensemble cast like kind of dive into that in that beautiful cinematic uh, Nolan style. I I just I thought it was a fucking masterpiece. Um, it is sitting high up there for me as one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, so that is about it for the new stuff. I'll kind of stop rambling about that now. Um, but like I said, I have been absolutely smashing film watching out, um, with both the Melbourne Film Festival happening and then in, God, like two weeks or so, we've got both Venice and Toronto coming up. So there's like a lot on my uh, to watch list that has been coming through. So we'll give some updates coming soon with that. But in the meantime, uh, let's dive into this week's film, The Children Are Watching Us, by Vittoria De Sica. In his first collaboration with renowned screenwriter and longtime partner, Cesare Zavattini, Vittoria De Sica examines the cataclysmic consequences of adult folly on an innocent child. Heralding the pair's subsequent work on some of the masterpieces of Italian neorealism, The Children Are Watching Us is a vivid, deeply human portrait of a family disintegration. Okie dokie. As I said at the top of this episode, uh, this episode is probably going to be pretty short. Um, mainly due to the fact that uh, my back really hurts (laughs) and it's hard to sit in front of a mic. But also, as I said, I don't really have much to say about this film, which is kind of disappointing for me. Um, Because of the films of Vittoria De Sica that I have seen, I have fucking loved. Um, I mean, undeniably, The Bicycle Thieves. I keep saying undeniably this episode. I don't know why. That's my word of the day, I guess. Um, But... Bicycle Thieves is a fucking masterpiece of cinema. I think that is one of the best Italian films of that era. Not not just Italian films, the best pieces of cinema to come out of the 40s. I think that is a fantastic and engaging and heartbreaking piece of cinema that obviously, as we've said, you can see the kind of, this film the children are watching is it's that Rosetta Stone. It has those moments of him presenting a story through the innocence of a child and all of that. And it's, you know, you can see where he's going to eventually evolve as a filmmaker. Uh, Similarly, Umberto D I think is fucking stunning. I, I love that film, but this one, so I went into this one, I think with high expectations, which, which probably wasn't the right way to do it. Um, i'll just quickly sum up the plot um and i mean it also in full transparency it's been all, like a couple of weeks since i watched this um but it's still there it's still rattling around uh but yeah it, it's follows the story of uh it's basically told through the percep, like through the eyes of this young boy Prico, who's a young italian boy who lives with his parents and they're a middle class household and his mother nina uh ends up uh we find is having an affair <laughs> with a man named Roberto. And uh, basically, dot point summary of this film, uh, Nina runs away with uh, Roberto, but then obviously the affair doesn't kind of work out, and so she ends up coming back and in, in an attempt to uh, distance herself from... Um, From her lover, uh, they basically agree to... The family goes on a holiday. They go on a vacation in a seaside resort. And then um, basically... Uh, it's, I'm looking up, what's the father's name? Uh, Andrea, sorry, is the husband of the, and Prico's father. Um uh, basically he has to go back to the city for work and he kind of insists, oh, Nina, you stay, you, you and Prico stay and have, you know, continue the holiday. And while that happens, uh, she kind of ends up getting lured back into the affair and, um, Prico runs away. He kind of witnesses an act that could be, you know, it's, he sees his mother and Roberto rekindling and reconnecting and he runs away uh, in search of his father. And, um, basically after <laughs> he gets returned to Nina and then they, you know, there's a big outburst and the family, again, like the synopsis said, disin- this disintegration of this family. And, um, basically what ends up happening is Nina again runs away and Andrea is left, uh, as, you know, an emotional wreck looking after Preko. He puts him into a, a boarding school just because he's like, I-, I need to look after myself. I need someone to help me with this. But while in that care, uh, Andrea actually kills himself, and um, Nina comes to collect Prico, and that's sort of the sadness that we are presented with in this film. Um, it's fine. <laughs> um, I, again, I've just bra- like you know, blazed through that plot, like really not diving into it much at all. Just like I said, those dot points. But it was one that, again, again on on the surface, hearing that synopsis and knowing it's Vittoria De Sica, I was expecting this to be a heart-wrenching, like beautifully rendered examination. But, again, it is well-made and well-constructed. But it is, like I said, that Rosetta Stone, that kind of initial grain of sand that you will then see will grow. Like, you know, that, that seed where everything that he eventually works on will kind of come from. And as an individual piece of work, it just didn't connect for me all right all right right enough kind of just beating around the bush let's let's actually try and dive into this film shall we uh so yeah as it kind of is alluded to on the back of the criterion box and in the synopsis i read earlier um the children are watching us is kind of considered to be one of the most fruitful the kind of beginnings of one of the most fruitful collaborations in world cinema history it's uh, the pairing of like the now, obviously, legendary uh, Italian director Vittoria De Sica, who, it turns out, had spent uh, his early career as an actor during the 20s and 30s. And he was a pretty successful one until he kind of decided to step away from that and uh, you know, go towards directing, and I guess the rest is history. Um, but yeah, it is his uh, teaming up with his longtime writer, uh, Cesar Zavattini, uh, the talented screenwriter who kind of went on to become one of the chief theorists of the neo-realist movement that uh, went on to flourish in Italy right after World War II ended. Um, it's kind of been... Their, their pairing and their collaborations together has been kind of touted as one of these beautiful kind of synergies which allowed uh, each kind of, each of these individual men to transcend uh, their own individual limitations and kind of create this beautiful kind of combination with their art um i personally fucking love any type of these collaborations i find them really really interesting when you get kind of two individuals who kind of have a you know moderate kind of success to get like individually but when they find that kind of yin to their yang and they kind of able to team up together and create something absolutely amazing i love those kind of collaborations uh, but yeah, the, the, the children are watching us. It's Vittoria De Sica's fifth film as a director, and it was kind of the f- and it's the first major collaboration between the two. Uh, Zavattini had worked um, as a uh, I think had done some rewrites and kind of collaborating work on like one or two of De Sica's earlier features, but this was the first one where it is solely written by him, and it's the two of them really kicking off on their collaborative work together. Uh, I've actually got a quote uh, from Zavatini and what he said about the work they did together. Uh, it's, The most important stage is the, in the evolution of my career as a filmmaker, and even my career as a human being. Through the character of the child, we felt for the first time a human being, whereas all my previous characters had felt like puppets. Uh, the realism is definitely felt within Prico's character. I, I would agree with that, and there is certainly empathy and pathos that's kind of present throughout the parents and those other characters that pop up throughout the film. Although I wouldn't go so far as to say that those characters have true realism, uh, in the same way that Prico does, or, or you know the type of the type of realism that leads to a genuine connection. Um, f- for me, at least, that is. But it is. I definitely agree with what he's saying about um, the framework of having the child as the protagonist and kind of presenting the film through the eyes of that child, through Prico. It definitely adds in that level of realism and empathy that allows you to latch on, but it's just, like I said, for me at least, lacking in all of the other primary characters. So that kind of leads to a little bit of a disconnect or kind of not being able to kind of latch onto it wholeheartedly, I guess. Um, what else? I mean, The Children, I'm just going to call it The Children from now on. That's kind of creepy, but whatever. The Children, are, it's usually kind of categorized as a proto-neorealist film. Um, and for anyone who doesn't kind of remember or doesn't know what an Italian neorealism film is, um, it was a film moment that was characterized by stories set amongst poor and the working class, and they were usually filmed on location and frequently using non-professional actors. Um, primarily, the the neorealist uh, films kind of addressed uh, issues of uh, ec- uh, economics and the condition, the poor living conditions and the moral condition that was kind of uh, happening in and around Italy um, after World War Two. Um, and they kind of use these films as a way to represent uh, the kind of fractured psyche that was happening within Italian culture and the conditions of everyday life, um, you know, mainly through examining and stories about poverty, oppression, injustice, and uh, desperation. Uh, thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but this film is kind of considered the proto-neo-realist film because it's not quite using all of those elements that would come into play later on in the 40s when you know and the 50s throughout that actual movement it's kind of one of the first baby steps of that uh, it's basically the, it's still using professional actors, although it is starting to delve into that idea of shooting on location on, you, you know, using a lower budget. And it's definitely taking the opportunity to kind of examine what, you know, quote unquote, like shocking themes like adultery, uh, which was a huge transgression at the time. This film was, uh, made, uh, in the family obsessed kind of fascist run era of Italy, uh, under Mussolini. um, it was these first kind of glimmerings of a new way of looking at reality and and at life and with this marvellous new intensity that led straight to the neorealist movement afterwards and, you know, at the end of the war um, that would help kind of, you know, reach its pinnacle uh, in the kind of films that uh, De Sica and uh, Zavattini would do later on in their career together, as well as, you know, Rossellini, Visconti and all those others. But... Circling back to kind of the actual narrative of the film, I think by having a child as the protagonist, the Seeker is kind of giving himself an opportunity to explore these intense themes in a kind of more open way than he kind of probably could at that time. Um, By filtering through the eyes of a kid, he's kind of able to expose, he's able to expose the audience, he's kind of able to expose these themes to a more modern audience, while also kind of tiptoeing around them in the same way. Uh, by having them being kind of observed by someone who isn't kind of 100% sure of the implications of the impact of what's going on around them. Uh, this is something kind of De seeker has then gone on to, you know, dives into in great detail later on in his career. I mean, to kind of what I think better effect in things like Bicycle Thieves, obviously. Um, he later kind of became a master, in my opinion, of... not <laughs> just <much laughs> He kind of later became a master... He later became a master of exploring the troubled kind of relationship between children and adults, and this feels kind of like that little seed that that big oak tree is kind of of those ideas and those master films are going to kind of later grow from. One thing I truly did love about this film, though, um, is the the cinematography. seeker uses kind of this, all of these incredible tracking shots throughout. And uh, not only does it create some absolutely beautiful imagery, capturing kind of this beautiful architecture and these wonderful kind of scenic locations, but it also uses the uh, uses kind of the spatial geography and the framing to help get across the kind of impact that these characters are having when they're exploring these themes. In the essay that's included along with the uh, Criterion edition, uh, written by Peter Brunette, um, it has a couple of uh, quotes that I think are really great at kind of uh, summing this up so I'm just going to read uh, one or two of them quickly now lengthy tracking shots that follow the mother and the child in the park and that quickly become linked with Prico's insistent looking visually capture one of the major themes of the film embodied even in its title Prico looks at the dysfunctional society around him and watches so that we can, un- we can see it and understand it an entire essay could be written on the way that the film uses space, space emotionally. Especially in the final scenes in the cavernous boarding school, the director creates a tiny, a tiny but complexly self-reflective and playful moment when a teenager mischievously inserts himself, unbeknownst to Prico's family, in their photograph of familial bliss at the beach. Only later, presumably, will they find the moment of happiness, like their lives has been turned into a joke for the amusement of others. See, like, when you read things like that about this film, you kind of can't help but give it up for it. It's like, yes, it is. It's really well made, and what it's doing and what it's exploring, you kind, it's kind of undeniable. But again, at that same time, it's just, it just didn't vibe with me. And I think it is a hundred percent through the 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 presentation of the parents in particular, like you know, Preco's like. It's, in particular, the way that the female characters, Prequa's mother, is kind of scorned and represented. And I understand that that is 100% a telling of that time. As we, as I said earlier, adultery was a huge deal back then under Mussolini in um, early 40s Italy. People were shunned, and that's kind of what is presented in this film. And it's a kind of a bit of a tough bill to swallow in, you know, 2023. But... I, you know, it is that thing where watching a old classic film, you kind of have to switch off that part of your brain and just accept it. Um, but yeah, whatever. Um, I, I just think those two quotes perfectly sum up, uh, getting back to the cinematography aspect and the visuals of the film, I just think that those two kind of little excerpts from the essay perfectly sum up what I, what I like about this film. Uh, while most people are marveling at the exploration of, of the taboo themes through the eyes of an innocent trying to understand it, i found myself being drawn into the amazing cinematography. And that's what truly helped get to Seeker and Zavatini's point across, for me at least. Not the characterization or the performances. It, it was the visuals. And while they, while the, you know, those elements are there uh, within the performances, and I see how it works for other people, it just didn't connect to me. I mean. The, the film is fine, and it's definitely worth seeing if you're interested in Italian neorealist cinema or, you know, any of De Sica's work, uh, since this is really kind of that building block of what he truly perfects, I think, in later films like Bicycle Thief and Umberto D. It's, like I said, it's that Rosetta Stone, that seed, that kernel that he then, you know, branches out from. It's, it's worth a look. But... That kind of, I guess, really sums up my thoughts on the film. Um, We haven't done this for a little bit, but I think it's about time we find out what Marty thinks about the film.
0: Hello, I'm Martin Scorsese. Before World War II, De Sica had been a movie star. The Italian equivalent of Cary Grant in a way. He then moved into directing and made several successful and you might say forward-looking pictures working inside the state-run Italian film industry. One of them was the movie we're about to see from 1942, The Children Are Watching Us. In some ways this is a lot like De Sica's neorealist films, like Shoeshine and the Bicycle Thief It's told mostly from a child's point of view. It was also De Sica's first film with the screenwriter Cesare Zavattini, his partner in the neorealist films. In other ways, this movie bears the stamp of the Italian studio system which was run by the fascist government under the dictator Benito Mussolini. The actors are professionals, it uses mostly studio sets, and it doesn't have the sense of social and economic turmoil that's so much a part of the neorealist movement. Even the title is a kind of admonition, like a warning to parents to be on their best behavior because after all, the children are watching us. A Fascinating film from Vittorio De Sica in 1942.
1: Thank you, Mr. Martin Scorsese. <laughs> of course, he loves this film. <laughs> that, that was a little excerpt uh, from him uh, introducing the film on uh, Turner Classic Movies, I believe, uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll move on to a little bit of trivia about the film uh this one's fucking uh we'll start with some some happier ones there's one or two little happy ones uh the film was made in 1942 and was not released in Italy until 1944 uh Marcello Mastrioni was an extra in the film uh I wish I'd known that in advance and I would have maybe tried to spot him out in the background and this is the kind of darker one uh Luciano D'Ambrosis uh was chosen to play preco because his mother had died shortly before filming, which helped him to cry on command. That is some dark shit, and I'm sorry that I'm ending it on that. But, you know, Hollywood, movies, what can you do? Uh, So we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. So the film is still in print from Criterion as a one-disc DVD, and it's also available to stream on the Criterion channel. And it comes with interviews with star Luciano D'Ambrosio and Vittorio De Sica scholar Castillo Kasulic, uh, new and approved subtitle translation, as well as the usual booklet and essay that Criterion usually do. Uh, but otherwise that is going to wrap us up for this uh, severely delayed episode of which I apologize again um, and it's actually a good time that we're wrapping it up because my back is killing me. <laughs> um, hopefully in the f- I'm getting it all kind of sorted and I-, I appreciate you all kind of sticking with me and you know the the long kind of, gap between drinks of water here at the podcast but we will hopefully be back at it again uh, with a little bit of a more regular pace and uh, the next film we'll be tackling is Jean Renoir's La Bête Humaine from 1938 uh, one I'm actually interested in uh, starring Jules uh, Jules Jabin. I'm very interested in checking this one out um but otherwise thank you all for listening and i apologize again for uh, the de- massive delay and the kind of lateness in this episode but uh we are still kicking on over on the patreon Uh, Lee and I just uh, last month released an episode, uh, a a commentary track, uh, talking about my favorite film of all time, Jaws. So uh, head on over there to listen to that. And we've got a couple more uh, great things coming up, including part two of our massive discussion uh, talking about music in movies, uh, where we're going to be talking about some of our favorite needle drops in cinema history, which is a lot of fun. But otherwise, you know, it's all the standard stuff. That's over at patreon.com slash thecriterionquest. Uh, You can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. Lee and I are both on Letterboxd, Instagram, all that shit's in the episode description as per usual. But thanks for listening, everybody, and I will hopefully be back in a fortnight's time looking at Jean Renoir's La Bête Humaine. For this week's episode, I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. Bye.